touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Say our love is a flame, not an amber. Say it's me that you want to... Hello, my lovely little sluts, and welcome to the A-Slot Podcast. This is a podcast about advice, sex, love, understanding, and trust. We talk about everything on the spectrum, from polyamory to monogamy, to vanilla sex, and to the kinkiest of the kinkiest. So won't you please join us on this channel. And as always, please enjoy. My soul is on fire. It's a flame with desire, which is why I perspire when we tango. You caught my nose in your left castanet, love. I can feel the pain yet, love. Every time I hear drums. And just remember, my little sluts, you can find us online. On Twitter, at the SLR Podcast. On Facebook, at the SLR Podcast. And also, on Instagram, at the SLR Podcast. We now have a YouTube channel as well. You can listen to us there. With our Patreon, we're going to be making weekly little blocks and short episodes that will be added on to what we already have for those that are Patreon members. Moving forward, there'll be more and more that I will be putting forward as part of the Patreon. So please do go to patreon.com slash the podcast. All proceeds at the moment will be going to the American Road Trip. If you haven't heard about that, go on to our social media and you'll see. For now, Enjoy the episode. As we dance to the masochism tango. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the ASAP Podcast with a brand new intro as well. Hallelujah. I um I know it's been a while uh since I did the last episode, but as the as you may have already heard, I did an announcement a little bit earlier about it. Um, yeah, I had to take some time off to sort out some some of the shit that I'd done in my own head. Um, I breached somebody's uh, trust and consent um, with regards to a story I told on Facebook Live a little while ago. But um, I'm back now. Everything's all sweet. Everything's all good. And as you may have heard in the intro as well, we now have a Patreon. Okay, um, that'll give you weekly episodes. Um, the odd one of those that isn't part of the regulars uh, will, well, each of them actually, short, sorry, there'll be an episode every week. Each of them will um, only be available to to Patreons, and there'll be little half hour episodes uh, of all sorts of different stuff, if you can call them. A slot shorts might be the best way to put them. Uh, but you can find that on patreon.com uh, slash the A slot podcast. Um, go and have a look. Check it out. Help me out. It's all going to the America trip. Uh, if you don't know about that, do check it out. I'll be going to, I think it's 24 different cities in 39 days. I'm doing a couple of things in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Potentially some stuff in Dallas, but we'll, we'll see when that time comes. Um, other exciting news is I'm heading off to Sydney on the 10th of May, so not long, only a couple of weeks away. Um, I'm going to be doing a, a podcasters meet and mingle with a whole bunch of other podcasters, including C from Swing Down Under. Uh, I think the Bedhoppers are going to be there, um, and it's all been organised by the uh, oh god, this is going to be bad now by the by the by people. Um, 
which is really really cool of them. It was really really cool of them to invite me, so I'm going to be doing that. There's going to be more details of where the meet and mingle is going to be uh, as part of that, but we will be going to our secret spot for Pendulum Party 10 uh, after that. So those of you that might be in Sydney around that sort of time, do come and join us. Do come and uh, hang out and meet and have a chat and whatnot. Um, it'll be really really cool to get on and meet some people. Uh, I will be taking a few of my toys with me for anybody who wants to uh, try some of those out. But for now, um, we have an episode uh, that was on Facebook Live, literally only about, I only finished it about 10 minutes ago uh, as of recording this, and it's all about love and the science behind it. Please enjoy. When you looked in my direction, I thought my heart might explode. My heart was racing and I thought it might explode. Because my sympathetic nervous system caused norepinephrine to stimulate my sinoatrial node. When you looked in my direction, when you first looked into my eyes. My stress response diverted blood flow from my stomach and intestines And it felt like butterflies I knew that I wanted to marry ya as my ventral tegmental area Sent signals to my nucleus accumbens And oh, oh, oh my lord, the anticipation of reward That do, do, dopamine starts pumping I know oxytocin is the potion of devotion Give me that dose of dopamine Hold the serotonin Still going, growing stronger all the time I love you And I'm never gonna change my mind Today we're going to be talking about love. I've already put one uh, episode up recently. It's only a short one. It's only about 10 minutes or so. Um, do go and check that one out. It's actually really quite important. I am on Facebook Live again too. Um, so uh, there will be uh, possibly some questions and whatnot coming from there, which I'm always happy uh, to talk about. So that should be absolutely fine. Um, I've been looking forward to doing this episode, if I'm honest. But before that, I have to go through all the regular stuff. Uh, where to find me, obviously, at, on all social media at the ASLOT Podcast. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, under all of those. And now Patreon as well. All of the details will be in the show notes, um, which you can find uh, Spotify, uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. You can uh, do it all on there as well. But for now, uh, I'm on Facebook Live as well as doing it, uh, doing this recording as well. So, love. Huh? Love. There's a lot of a lot of questions around it. How does it work? What is it? All of that sort of stuff. So I thought I'd go into uh, into it a little bit myself uh, and learn a little bit about it as well. I don't know a heck of a lot about it. Uh, a lot of people around don't know a heck of a lot about it. Uh, we just know that it's there, I guess. Um, we don't know a lot about how it occurs, what happens in the brain to make it occur, and all of that sort of stuff. So I thought that I would uh, do a little bit of a little bit of digging uh, myself into into how it comes about and all of that side of things. So um, so yeah, it's something that I've become, uh, I guess, a little bit obsessed with lately. Is the idea of it? There was a time, uh, people who know me quite well, there was a time that I didn't believe in love at all. I didn't think it existed. It was just some, for lack of a better term, fantasy. Uh, that's <laughs> that's only true in fairy tales, and for someone else, but not for me, etc., etc. Um, but it's something that's sort of I've been thinking about a lot more recently. Uh, I don't know if that's because I'm getting older and and it's becoming to worry me a bit more, or it's just something that I found interesting, I guess. So, 
so that it's 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 a really difficult thing to quite to try and quantify is love but um there's scientists in all kinds of different fields that have tried to sort of figure it out and and know what it is how it is how it happens all that sort of stuff so you get people from anthropology to neurosciences and they've been asking the same sort of question for decades is what is love it turns out that the science behind love is both simpler and more complex than we might think i'm taking this from uh, a harvard article at the moment um called love actually google if you google the phrase the bio, biology of love okay go ahead google that now do what you need to do you get answers that run all over the place basically it'll come from being completely inaccurate to holy shit that has to be a hundred percent correct but it doesn't actually have to be the uh, the simple answer is most of the time we don't know we don't know what love is how it happens or anything like that but needless to say the scientific basis of love is often sensationalized and as with most science we don't know enough to draw from conclusions about every single piece of the puzzle and that's why we can literally just sit here and say we don't know What we do know, however, is that much of love can be explained by chemistry. So if there's really a formula for love, what is it and what does it mean? That's sort of the, the age-long question, I guess. But just for a moment, I, I want you to stop and I want you to think about the last time you ran into somebody that you find really, really attractive. You know, that sort of... Whew, sort of feeling that wowee sort of factor. Did you stammer? Did your palms begin to sweat? Did you say something completely stupid or asinine and tripped over spectacularly while trying to saunter away? I think that's just me. I think who does that? But it does happen and chances are your heart was studying in your chest at that time as well. And it's no surprise, because of that, that for centuries, people thought that love, and other most and most other emotions, for that matter, came from the heart. But as we know in this more modern world now, love is more about the head and the brain, and that sort of in turn makes the rest of your body go absolutely haywire and lose all semblance of what it what it's meant to be I guess for lack of a better term so the the foremost sort of ooh, the foremost I guess uh, practitioner of, of this sort of study especially on the anthropological side uh, was Dr. Helen Fisher at Rutgers and she said that love can be broken down into three three categories and we'll go into this a little bit later on as to how love can be broken down into just three categories uh, because it doesn't make a whole heap of sense to a lot of people first before I go into that I do want to talk about what uh, well, the question what is love and it's a near impossible question to answer if I'm completely honest so I'm going to go to Lacey S Gibson uh, who is from uh, which university was it? Southern Illinois University in the States. Uh, and this is in the article, The International Journal of Undergraduate Research and Creative Activities. Uh, the title of this article, sorry, is the, Sci the Science of Romantic Love Distinct Evolutionary, Neural, and Hormonal Characteristics. And the way that Lazy answers this question of, of what is love begins like this. And I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not reading directly from the article because I don't like the feeling of that, it feels weird. But in order to characterize romantic love, it's essential to first define the specific parameters that constitute the general physiological state known as love. Love can be first kiss butterflies of nervous anticipation, a transient feeling of eternal bliss, it can be a lasting memory of a whirlwind. Night becomes morning becomes lifetime. A marriage sealed by a diamond. It's forever, you know. <laughs> it 
hand-holding and sentence-finishing while fearlessly strolling through the park into ageless beauty. Simply stated by one researcher, love may be a complex emotion. It is never a single feeling. And I think this about jealousy as well. People who have followed me for a while will know that. But it's never a single feeling. An ambition, a moral commitment, a private dynamic struggle, a deal, a stop sign to psychological inquiry. Love can be a feeling of euphoria that has inspired poets, musicians, filmmakers, any creative anything, any creative person that's ever lived. We all know that most stories, at essence, are love stories. It's just the way it is. And this has allowed people to produce a number of culturally important masterpieces. If you think of music, you think of Beethoven. Think of art, you think of Da Vinci, you know, uh, anybody else you want to think of in that. My brain's gone absolutely numb. (laughs) Gone absolutely out the window when trying to think about that just now, which is annoying, but hey. That's what happens. It's been a long, long uh, week. True. Will society be without classics like Titanic, The Notebook, or cheesy love songs such as Maroon 5's She Will Be Loved, even? Love is critically important to humanity, yet it can be an uncomfortable subject of discussion, which is part of the reason I wanted to talk about it. It's because it is not something that people want to talk about. And that's, uh, that's kind of what I do here, right? Is talk about shit that people don't really want to talk about but and it, it, it's even more so for people who are physicians and psychiatrists because it's it's largely more what's the word I'm looking for it, it, it's more associated with humanities as opposed to scientific research you know more about people more on the anthropological side than on the on the scientific side even though anthropology is a science, we know that. However, love is beginning to make a splash in the scientific community as its physiological mechanisms are becoming uncovered. Scientists are beginning to separate the wide spectrum of love into distinct categories. As in Sternberg's Triangular Theory of Love and Helen Fisher, we spoke about Helen Fisher just a moment ago, and Helen Fisher's classification system. And that's actually a system that I quite like, and we're going to go in depth about that in in a little while, because I think it's actually really, really cool and really, really clever. So Steinberg, Sternberg, sorry, not Steinberg, Sternberg's triangular theory of love separates dimensions of love into three categories: intimacy, passion, and commitment. Love is classified based on combinations of any of these categories, and but in in Fisher's classification system on the other hand it's based on evolutionary neurological and hormonal distinctions and includes three processes attraction romantic love and attachment and uh, that's what we're gonna go and talk about a wee bit more now I'm gonna go back to our Harvard article written by Catherine Wu here. so the three categories that I was just talking about that Fisher breaks love down into. Um, uh, those three categories are lust, attraction, and attachment, like I just said. Now, lust will base itself around testosterone and estrogen. Attraction will go through dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. Attachment will, will use oxytocin and vasopressin. And we'll go into, a lot of people might know what these things already are, or at least in some part but we're going to go a little bit more in depth into them as well okay so if we talk about the chemical that sort of instant sort of yes let's go it's it starts with the lust side of it okay for the most part people don't generally jump lust and go on to attachment or anything like that that's when it gets a wee bit wee bit creepy and a wee bit scary but lust is driven by the desire for sexual gratification Okay. The evolutionary basis for this stems from our need to reproduce. A need shared among all living things, although some people 
uh, as we know, have, well, some creatures, I should say, not some people, uh, have sexual pleasure as well, but that is derived from our need to reproduce. Through reproduction, organisms pass on their genes and thus contribute to the perpetuation of their species. And that's the same for humans as well. The hypothalamus of the brain plays a big role in this, stimulating the production of sex hormones. So this is your testosterone and your estrogen. Testosterone in males, estrogen in females. Okay? From the testes and the ovaries. So it's... When people say they're thinking with their, with their dick or thinking with their vag, they genuinely kind of are. In, the, in this weird sort of way, the brain is telling their genitals that, hey, we need to get excited now. We need to get aroused. Uh, we need to get hard or get wet. Uh, although I have talked in the past about the distinctions between the two and how they are. You can uh, develop physical arousal but not mental arousal um, and the differences between so, so it's not always that way. But while these chemicals, and I've just done this as well, are often stereotyped as being male and female, respectively they both play a role in men and women. As it turns out, testosterone increases libido in just about everyone. So if you're a female you take testosterone pills, you're going to get aroused more as well. The effects are less pronounced with estrogen, but some women report being more sexually motivated around the time they ovulate. So that's when you're the most horny people. As much as you might not like to say it, that is the absolute truth. So, the second part of this is the attraction side of it. And this is where physical attraction comes into it a little bit more. Attraction seems to be distinct, but though closely related phenomenon. We can certainly lust for someone who we attracted to. And vice versa. You know, you look at somebody, hey, attracted, yeah. Like, uh, and and <laughs> that was awful. I don't know why. I just For those who are just listening can't see my Facebook, I've punched my hand for some reason to show that. Um, but one can happen without the other. Attraction involves brain pathways that control reward behavior, which partly explains why the first few weeks or months of a relationship can be so exhilarating and so exciting and, and so fun and all-consuming you want to do everything you can I liken it to what's called new relationship energy um, where you've just got in a relationship you want to do everything together you need to spend every waking moment together etc 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 and this is also where dopamine comes into comes into the picture so dopamine's produced by the hypothalamus. I'm going to say that wrong so many times in this. So if somebody wants to tell me the correct way, please, please, please do. Um, but dopamine is a particularly well-publicized player in the brain's reward pathway. It's released when we do things that feel good to us. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of things <laughs> in that party, guys. Um, but we're, we're going to focus on the ones that we're going to focus on. Um, in this case, these things include spending time with loved ones and also having sex. So, high levels of dopamine and a related hormone, norepinephrine, are released during attraction. So, these can be the butterflies you feel when you see somebody that you're that you're attracted to, that you think, hmm, yes, lovely. And these chemicals make us giddy, energetic, and euphoric. And they even lead to decreased appetite and sometimes insomnia. So, if you can't sleep when you've finally found someone that you really think is attractive, this actually could be a thing. You can actually be so in love that you can't eat and sleep. In fact, norepinephrine is also known as noradrenaline. And that could sound familiar to some people because it's, it plays a large role in the fight or flight response. So it's either you fight there or you get the fuck out of that sort of situation. And that kicks into high gear when we're stressed and it keeps us alert. So noradrenaline and norepinephrine is something that will be released if you're, let's say, being chased by somebody with an axe, for example. You know, that's going to kick in. 
And it's either you're going to get superhuman strength or you're going to run really fucking quickly. You can go either way. And that happens when it comes to attraction as well. So that makes things uh, a lot different. A lot different. Sorry, the screen. <laughs> um, so the brain scans of people in love have actually shown that the primary reward centers of the brain, including the cardiac nucleus, fire like crazy. You know, they send sparks all over the place. It's really, really shows up strongly when people are shown a phone, uh, a photo of somebody that they're intensely attracted to, compared to when they're shown someone they feel neutral towards, like an old school, high school acquaintance or something like that. Now, here's another interesting part of this. We're going to go more in depth with a lot of this as we as we move on, but this is just sort of the the quick process around it. Attraction also seems to lead to a reduction in serotonin. Now, people have heard of serotonin. Serotonin, it's, it's quite a common thing uh, these days. It's a hormone that's known to be involved in appetite and mood. Interestingly, people who suffer from obsessive-compulsive disorder also have low levels of serotonin. And this is what led scientists to speculate that this is what underlies the overpowering infatuation that characterizes the beginning stages of love. Really quite interesting. This, this next part I, I found quite funny in this article. Is this little bit's called the friend zone, but it's also the attachment part of love. So you've been together for a fair while. Um, you've gone through all the excitement of the new relationship energy. You've gone through all the all the, well, not all, I guess, but a lot of the, the, the fun sexual stuff that you can do when you're early on in a relationship, all of that sort of died down and we get to the attachment side of things. Attachment's the predominant factor in long-term relationships, okay? So this is where you, this is where the, the you know, people who have been married 50 years and then stuff sort of come in. This is where that starts. While well, lust and attraction are pretty much exclusive to romantic engagements and entanglements, attachment medi mediates friendships, parent-infant bonding, social cordiality, many other intimacies as well. And the two main hormones that tend to be a part of this are oxytocin, which a lot would have heard of as well, and vasopressin, which is something people may not have heard of quite as much. But this is all, again... Uh, in the brain and is brought about by the hypothalamus hypothalamus again I'm gonna get that wrong so many times it's just just should call it hypo but um, yeah we'll get started on oxytocin first that's the one that people seem to know just a little bit more and myself as well I know a little bit more about it uh, but it's often nicknamed the cuddle hormone uh, well Purely because it's it's produced by the same thing and released in large quantities during sex, breastfeeding, and childbirth. So it create it's basically what creates that sort of meshing of of two people, whether it be sexual or not. So you get that bond between a mother and child when they've just given birth while they're breastfeeding. You can get it um, even spending more and more time with friends and. You know those deep and meaningful conversations that can happen as part of that with friends and, and whoever. You do get that oxytocin release as part of that. The common factor between each of the things that I said, sex, breastfeeding, childbirth, is that they're all precursors to bonding. But the common factor here is that oh, it also makes it pretty clear that why having separate areas for a Attachment, lust, and attraction is important. We don't want to be having the, the, the lust and attraction part to everyone as part of this. We are attached to our immediate family, but those other emotions, lust and lust and attraction, have no business there. And people who have muddled that up really, really doesn't end well. So we move on to... The fact that love hurts is part of this. And again, I'm going to go back through a lot of the stuff that I've talked about 
at the start of this, and I'll go over quite a bit. But everything I've said so far sort of paints love in, in a very rosy sort of way, a very happy sort of way. Hormones are released, make feel nice, rewarded, and we're close to our romantic partners. But that can't be the whole, whole story. Love is often accompanied by jealousy, erratic behavior, irrationality, along with a host of other less than positive emotions and moods less than positive emotions and moods. Okay? It seems that our friendly cohort of hormones is also responsible for the downside of love. We go back to dopamine. It's the hormone for that is responsible, I guess, for the vast majority of the brain's reward pathway. And that means controlling both the good and the bad. We experiences we experience surges of dopamine for our virtues and our vices. In fact, the dopamine pathway is particularly well studied when it comes to addiction. This makes me feel nice, I'm going to keep on doing it. And so they, so they do, it's, it's as simple as that. The same regions that light up when we're feeling attraction light up when drug addicts take cocaine. We can be genuinely addicted to love. Not just when we take cocaine, though, but when we binge eat sweets. For example, cocaine maintains dopamine signaling for longer than usual, leading to a temporary high. Same with weed or any other upper drug that you might want to take. In a way, attraction is much like an addiction to another human being, if you think about it. So the, the same brain regions light up when we become addicted to material goods as when we become emotionally dependent on our partners. Partners, Jesus, and and addicts going into withdrawal are not unlike love-struck people craving the company of someone they can't see. And it, it's it's really quite interesting. It's sort of a yin and yang. So dopamine, which runs the reward pathways, like I said, is great in moderate doses, helping us enjoy food, exciting events, and relationships. However, if we push it too far. <laughs> Someone's just said, and cheese. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, cheese is fucking good too. Um, it's great in moderate doses, helping us enjoy food, exciting events, and relationships. However, if we push that too far, and too much dopamine in a relationship can underlie the unhealthy emotional dependence on our partners. And this is where obsession and things like that come into play. And while healthy levels of oxytocin can help us bond and feel warm and fuzzy towards our companions, elevated oxytocin can also fuel prejudice. So if you have too much oxytocin or, do or dopamine being released at once, it can lead to, like I said, irrational behavior, jealousy can be a part of that because this person is mine and no one else's, etc., 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 all that side of things. And even adultery, which is kind of weird, but it can lead to it. So recent studies on party drugs like your MDMA and your GHB show that oxytocin may be the hormone behind the feel-good sociable effects that these chemicals produce. These positive feelings are taken to an extreme in this case, causing the user to dissociate from his or her environment and act wildly, wildly and recklessly. Furthermore, oxytocin's role as a bonding hormone bonding hormone appears to help reinforce the uh, positive feelings we already feel towards people that we love. That is, as we become more attached to our families, friends and significant others, oxytocin is working in the background, reminding us why we like these people and increasing our affection for them. While this may be good for things like monogamy, not, not, not my thing as most people know, such associations are not always positive. For example, oxytocin has also been suggested to play a role in ethnocentrism, increasing our love for people in our already established cultural groups, and making those unlike us seem more foreign. Thus, like dopamine, oxytocin can be a bit of a double-edged sword. And <laughs> what, what, would be, what would love be without a little bit of embarrassment? Putting yourself out there. Sexual arousement, but not necessarily attachment, appears to turn off regions in our brain that regulate critical thinking, self-awareness, and rational behavior. 
including parts of the prefrontal uh, prefrontal cortex. In short, love makes us dumb. <laughs> and I could not agree with that more. Love makes us so stupid, and and we miss things that we would ordinarily pick up, and just a whole array of different things that that go on when feelings of love are involved. Have you ever done something when you're in love that you later regretted? Maybe not. But I would ask ask a certain star-crossed Shakespearean couple. Might be a little bit late for them. You might know them as Romeo and Juliet. A pair of star-crossed lovers. But hey, let's um Let's talk about some other things that might play a part in why you might fall in love with somebody. Because many of us say that we have a type, but do we? Is that true? Here's some more reasons why you might fall in love with somebody, or something of that nature anyway. Most people realise that we all secrete our own special smell. Some people good, some people bad. Some people call it pheromones, but it's a smell, okay? Like hormones, pheromones are chemicals, but the difference is that they are outside the body. They linger in our sweat and other bodily fluids. And the science suggests that this is a subconscious factor in your initial attraction to someone. If you're female, this can be closely linked to the health of your potential children. In one study, female participants were asked to rate the smell of several t-shirts, slept in by various men. Overall, the women preferred the sense of men who had disease-resistant genes, gene profiles that would complement their own. And this suggests that we subconsciously look for a partner that will help us produce strong, healthy babies resistant to as many diseases, many diseases as possible. I, I, I'm not sure that I like how that's been said. Uh, purely because that seems a little bit too misogynistic for me. It seems too much focused on females just want to raise strong children, and I disagree with that notion completely. Women are here for far more than just their children and how they want to raise said children. But I do think that scent is a distinct factor in how women... Or how people, I'm not even going to say women, how people find others attractive. Somebody smells bad, you probably don't want to go near it. Your nose may be sniffing for a different gene profile, but that doesn't stop us being attracted to like-minded people. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I just read another comment that's popped up. I love disease resistance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Shit. Way to derail everything. Um, but one study of about 1,500 couples, which analyzed the similarity of individual personality traits, found that happy couples' personalities synced up 86% of the time. So this, we're now talking about how similar they are to you. Uh, and this goes into the age-old adage of opposites attract. And no, I, I don't buy that for a moment. Um, I do believe that people need to be I can't think of the word, but they need to be similar in a number of ways to be able to bounce off each other. Okay, they can't just be complete polar opposites and go, yeah, this is this is going to work. It's it's probably not. It's not just personality traits that you're likely to be attracted to, either. It's also going to be somebody who has similar values and similar beliefs to yourself. And and this is quite interesting. There was another study of, of about 1,500 again, where every single couple held similar life views, including the ones who had only just met. So this wasn't couples, sorry. I'll rephrase that. This was just a pair of people. The next one's probably the most obvious one, uh, how you can find somebody attractive, is their appearance. There are people that base their partners purely on appearance but then find something else that can go with it later on. They say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. 
There are still several ways in which appearance has a subconscious impact on whom you're attracted to. I know there's going to be people here that are up in arms going, no, no, I don't care what my partner looks like, blah, 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 blah. Um, I'm going to say right now bullshit to that because there's going to be some base form of attraction on a physical level. In my opinion, I could be completely wrong. But I'll continue on with this part of it because it is it is still interesting. I'm learning this as long, uh, uh, along with the people who are listening as well. So this is uh, really, really cool for me as well. Um, and <laughs> we've we've talked uh, I've noted upon before, and it's been noted on in many other sort of um, books. It was noted upon in uh, a couple of Dan Brown's books, even where a symmetrical face and the well, what is it, the divine something or other, divine equation or something like that, where you know this part is equal to another part of the body, and it it all adds up to being attractive or whatever. Um, but having a symmetrical face is generally considered a hallmark of conventional attractiveness. Studies have found that having a symmetrical face implies the presence of good genes, which is fucking amazing, uh, while an overly lopsided face may imply poor health, alcohol abuse or smoking. Uh, I'm now looking at my face and going, I'm not symmetrical, so yay, not conventional looking. But that's absolutely fine by me. Uh, I don't need to be conventionally good looking. I can be good looking on my own terms. Meanwhile, in men, having a longer ring finger in comparison to the index finger is an indicator of more testosterone. And I guarantee now, I've just done it, every single male who's listening has just had a look at their ring finger and their forefinger. Um, but having a longer ring finger in comparison to the index finger is an indicator of more testosterone and therefore a higher sperm count, increased fertility, a healthy heart, and better genes. And I, like I said, I guarantee everybody's just held their fingers up like that and apparently I'm not uh, overly healthy or have high fertility chances. Um, but overcoming all of that is your own life experiences, which is why your preference and taste and appearance is very much unique to you. Studies found that who we find attractive is most strongly influenced by our life experiences, such as the kind of faces you're exposed to and the relationships you form. For example, having a positive relationship with somebody may have you subconsciously pairing their facial characteristics with positive information. Subsequently, people who look similar to them might become more attractive to you as well. And this is really quite interesting as part of that. Um, purely because you hear that uh, in the movies all the time, in the movies you always hear that Girls want somebody who's like their father. And I think this has a part of that, in, in a part of it. And not just the whole daddy got Jeff Goldblum thing that's happening at the moment. This could literally be that father was very, very good to you, so somebody who looks potentially somewhat similar to them becomes attracted to you uh, because of that positive information. So that's really, really cool as well. Research also suggests that familiarity and exposure to certain faces increases their attractiveness. So that means that you prefer faces that are more similar to those you're familiar with and tend to judge a face that is very different from faces you've previously seen as less attractive. I guess that's why I should keep doing those videos, these videos, instead of just um, instead of just doing the audio side of it. Might means that my face becomes more familiar. Could work, but. The next part, and this I think comes as part of the uh, appearance side of it, is body mass index. Mine's shocking, by the way. My BMI is uh, apparently morbidly obese. I'm 120 kilos, which is about 250 pounds for uh, 245, 245 pounds for those of you that are American. Um, so, and 5'10", 5'11", at a stretch. So I'm considered morbidly obese, but that, that isn't the whole thing. Um, so traditionally a waist-hip ratio of 7 to 10 has been held up as the ideal for feminine attractiveness, while women look for a man with a waist-to-hip ratio of 9 to 10. But according to one study, it's more important to have a healthy BMI. 
Apparently, men find women with a BMI of 18 to 20 most attractive and indicates good health and fertility. I don't know why this whole weight thing comes into fertility. I think it's a load of shit, personally, but that's okay. Um, meanwhile, women are subconsciously... I hate this subconscious fucking thing. Looking for a man with a body fat of around 12%. I'm certain mine's around fucking 30, which isn't great. Um, I should probably get that checked out, actually. Probably because too high body fat is associated with a range of negative health implications, including heart disease, diabetes, yay, and reduced fertility. So, we're, we're, we're getting through a lot of it at the moment, and it's it's kind of full on. I'm, I'm not going to lie, I'm bringing in a lot of information that I certainly did not talk about, uh, did not learn about, and have not learned about before. So it's it's really, really interesting to me. Now, I'm going to go into the physiology of love here. So this is, I'm going to be focusing a bit more on the brain than anything else at the moment. But I'm just going to have a quick drink first. I really should edit my shit more often so it's not just, I'm going to take a drink here. But that's okay. Um, one thing that we that we haven't touched on yet is, and I've been feeling this a lot recently because of the lack of it, but love is undeniably a nutritional need for all humans. Our physical, mental, and emotional well-being greatly depends on receiving nurturance and positive touch from healthy, reciprocal relationships. But why is this? The answer lies within the organization of our own bodies, especially our brain and our heart. The brain is organized into four main areas, each increasing in complexity. So we've got the brainstem and cerebellum control. They basically have most bodily functions under their, under their umbrella. They're essential for maintaining overall homeostasis in the body and thus are less capable of change than the higher levels of the brain. This lack of plasticity ensures that bodily functioning remains stable in order to survive. So we're talking here about breathing, heartbeat, hearing, appetite, sleep, and the cerebellum goes into movement, coordination, balance, muscle tone, that sort of thing. Next is the limbic system, which is primarily made up of the hypothalamus, which we've already talked about. Um, which gives us those neuroadrenalines and the dopamine and that sort of stuff. So our feeling side of things. Um, it also brings in the hippocampus and the amygdala. <laughs> Anytime I hear, I uh, see the word amygdala, I'm, I think of Waterboy and and the alligator medulla oblongata. I don't know why, just every single time. Um, it controls emotional responses and behaviours and is involved in the formation of memories and it handles the fight or flight responses that we were just talking about a moment ago. The prefrontal cortex is even more complex. It plans cognitive behaviours, expresses personality, helps in decision making and moderates social behaviour. At higher functioning parts of the brains, the limbic system and prefrontal cortex are more malleable, which allows us to learn new information, new skills, quite regularly, I guess. The adaptability of the limbic system in particular is key to individual emotional regulation and cognitive functioning. But the prefrontal cortex definitely has a large part of that as well. The four areas of the brain are all connected and can communicate with one another via signals. But we're going to move a little bit forward now into the heart-brain connection because people think it's just one or, one or t'other. But because the prefrontal cortex is more complex, it cannot as easily influence the more basic functioning regions. When under the most severe stress, we are driven by instinctual, instinctual survival responses from the brainstem, like the fight or flight passages that we were talking about earlier. So what does this mean for us and our relationships and our love? Even the most rational cognitive brain can fall victim to emotional reactivity. And we may regret these responses, but as we know, the systems of the body are all intertwined, 
and thus the heart-brain connection is one of the one of the utmost importance. The first pattern of response in life is the fetal experience of the maternal heartbeat, 80 beats per minute. It stills a pattern within our child, and it becomes the organising feature for basically everything. Mother's resting heart heart rate that an individual experience is the ideal rate for priming infant cortex to take in new information. Now the interesting thing about this is that this heart rate can vary from 60 to 100 but it remains a soothing rate and is established as a key rhythm in life regardless of whether it's 55, you know, 85, 90. The heart rate variability is a variation in the time between heartbeats and it should be steady instead of sporadic or irregular. Coherence refers to amplitude, frequency and regularity of the heartbeat and we want it to be relatively high. Those who are having frustrated feelings respond with low variability and low coherence. On the other hand, those who feel appreciation instead of frustration respond with that high heart rate variability with a low coherence. So if we move into a couple's chronic fighting, right, it creates a patterned emotional response that adversely affects the homeostasis of the body. We're creatures of habit, okay, and eventually form a typical reaction to stressful moments with our partners, settling into uh, common negative interaction. And this all still does tie into love because it's the same, it's the same sort of things that are being released here. It's the same hormones that are being released is what I'm looking for. So you're still getting your dopamine, you're still getting your oxytocin, you're still getting your vasomycin, all of that sort of stuff, but it's being used in a different way. Remember how I said dopamine and oxytocin especially, if there's too much of it flowing through the body, it can actually have the adverse effect of love. And this is where we come into this here, is that this dopamine and oxytocin is being released at too high a level, which means that it becomes a more... Uh, or more of a head-to-head sort of thing as opposed to just a loving thing. Relationships are bi-directional or go both ways. Therefore, when one individual in in the pain emotionally reacts, the other probably does as well. And that's how fights start. One will react, the other one will come back, etc., etc., etc. But negative emotions can shift that that heart rate variation adversely affecting bodily system functioning, causing both individuals in the couple to have decreased immune function and increased cardiovascular responses. Positive emotions, however, keep the heart at a better, healthier baseline rate, and if one or both stops the negative cycle, the relationship will function in a more positive environment. So basically what this is saying here in in a in a relationship and in love, that if somebody if you're having a fight And it's negative on both sides. It says, hey, you did this, but you did this, but you did this, but you did this. The best thing that you can actually do is just... is <laughs> It's really difficult in this situation because you've got such a, such a high heart rate at the time and increased blood flow throughout the body that you've released your neuroadrenalines, uh, your dopamine and your oxytocin going through the system. You just want to keep going and you want to win, right? Win. But if you're able to stop that negative cycle, you'll end up in a more positive place in a much better place. But it's not all about these chemicals being released, these hormones, because the power of touch should not be underestimated in this either, especially as a positive regulation strategy. A partner's touch triggers subconscious physiological responses. So in fact, touch triggers a release of hormones in a one thousandth of a second in both men and women almost immediately affecting affecting a personal's emotional state. So if you use this in a positive sense uh, and you use physical touch in this situation as a positive thing, you know, a slight caress as opposed to something that's an aggressive movement, then this is going to help uh, quite a bit. So being emotional is often the great dysregulator of relationships, right? If you're a more emotional person, it's more difficult. This is essential to remember when teaching all the great relationship material. When couples go home and try to implement the material, it will be harder to do so, especially if they're angry, resentful, ticked off, or or frustrated, I guess. 
So, we, we, we've learnt a lot so far at this point. Uh, but I'm going to go back a, even a little bit further in the studies, and we're going to talk about Aldous Huxley. So, Aldous Huxley described his first experience with psychedelic drugs in 1954, in the doors of romantic, uh, the doors of perception, and this cast back to the metaphorical language of the English romantic poet William Blake, who wrote in *The Marriage of Heaven and Hell*. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. Huxley likened the human brain to a reducing valve. It functions to limit your awareness to only the, those perceptions, ideas and memories that might be useful for your survival and at a given moment, eliminating all else. Although narrowed awareness prevents you from becoming overwhelmed by a flood of images and impressions, it can become an overloaded habit, a self-limiting cavern that you can that you become convinced is reality. Huxley believed that there are ways out. Certain people seem to be born with a kind of bypass that circumvents the reducing valve. More spiritual people, I guess. So our, our body is steeped in biochemicals, right? We have, all, like I've just talked about, a whole bunch of different hormones and whatnot. These are all biochemicals that are inside our body. And keeping an eye on a fuller positivity system enables a more precise definition of love. I'm going to go back to definitions again. Love, like all the other positive emotions, follows the ancestral logic of broaden and build. Those pleasant yet fleeting moment, moments of connection that you experience with others. Expand your awareness in ways that accrue to create lasting and beneficial changes in your life. Love, as I see it, is found in those moments of warmth, connection and openness to another person. It energizes this whole system and sets it into motion. Just as your body is designed to extract oxygen from Earth's atmosphere and nutrients from the food you ingest, your body was designed to love. Love. Like taking a deep breath or eating an orange when you're depleted and thirsty. Not only feels great, but is also life-giving. An indispensable source of energy, sustenance and health. In describing love like this, I'm not just taking poetic license, but drawing on science. As we've just talked about, this is all scientific. But, this science illuminates for the first time how love and its absence, especially its absence, fundamentally alters these biochemicals that I've just spoken about. They in turn can alter the very ways that your DNA gets expressed within your cells, so it can change so, so, so much. We know now that a steady diet of love, of these micro moments of positive connection, influences how people grow and change, making them healthier and more resilient. And we're beginning to understand exactly how it works by tracking the complex chain of biological reactions that cascades throughout your body and change your behavior in ways that influence those around you as well as yourself. It's all too tempting, isn't it? Especially in Western culture, to take your body to be a noun, like other concrete things that you can see and touch. You typically describe your body with reference to its physical properties, such as your height, your weight, your skin tone, your apparent age and the like. You recognize, of course, that five years from now your body's physical properties might shift a bit, might become shorter, heavier, more pale. Yet constancy, as Eastern philosophies warn, is an illusion, a trick of the mind. Impermanence is the rule. Mere photographs fail to capture these non-stop and mostly unseen churning dynamics. Instead, you need movies. Increasingly, scientists need to the scientists work to capture these and other dynamic changes as they unfurl. 
I want to turn a spotlight here onto two of the main biological characters in the play of your life. The hormone oxytocin, again, which circulates through your brain and your body, and your vagus nerve, the tenth cranial nerve that runs deep within your brainstem down to your heart and lungs and other internal organs. Together with the brain, these are the three central characters in love's biology. The mere act of being entrusted with another person's money raises the trustee's naturally occurring levels of oxytocin. As you interact with one person after another during the day, these three biological characters gently nudge you to attend to other people more closely and forge connections when possible. They shape your motives and behaviours in subtle ways, and ultimately their actions serve to strengthen your relationships and knit you closer to the social fabric of life. I'm going to go quite in depth into oxytocin here. It's a neuropeptide that acts both in the brain and the rest of the body. It's long known to play a key role in social bonding and attachment. But we didn't know this until 1994. This is, what is it now? 35 years ago. Not that long ago. No, 25. Jesus Christ, I'm not that old. I was born in 89. <laughs> uh, and this was from experiments at teachers of University of Maryland with a monogamous breed of prairie voles. Oxytocin, when dripped into one animal's brain in the presence of the opposite sex, creates in that animal a long-lasting preference to remain together with the other, cuddled up side by side. In humans, oxytocin surges during sexual intercourse for both men and women. For women during childbirth and lactation, pivotal interpersonal moments that stand to forge new social bonds or cement existing ones. The natural blasts of oxytocin during such moments are so large and powerful that for many years they blinded all but blinded scientists to, more, to the more subtle ebb and flow of oxytocin during more day-to-day -day activities such as playing with your kids, getting to know your neighbour, or striking a deal with a new business partner. Technical obstacles also needed to be cleared, as it was difficult until recently, to reliably and non-invasively measure and manipulate oxytocin during natural behaviour. I'm going to end it here, actually. Um, there's a lot more that can be said about love and the science behind it. Um, I'm going to do a second part, I think, because this has been really, really interesting to me. I know there's been a lot of big words used. I know there's been a lot of information given out. There's going to be a lot to take on in one hit, but I enjoyed this. So be prepared for part two of The Science of Love. When you looked in my direction, I thought my heart might explode. My heart was racing and I thought it might explode. Because my sympathetic nervous system caused norepinephrine to stimulate my sinoatrial node. When you looked in my direction, when you first looked into my eyes. When you looked into my eyes. My stress response diverted blood flow from my stomach and intestines And it felt like butterflies I knew that I wanted to marry ya as my ventral tegmental area Sent signals to my nucleus accumbens And oh, oh, oh my lord The anticipation of reward That do, do, dopamine starts pumping I know oxytocin is the potion of devotion Give me that dose of dopamine Hold the serotonin Still going, growing stronger all the time I love you And I'm never gonna change my mind When you first smiled at me I did foolish things 
because my judgment was impaired by a reduction in activity in my amygdala and the frontal cortex of my brain. When you first smiled at me, I began to fall. One smile and I began to fall. And so did my serotonin levels, producing anxiety. I couldn't eat or sleep at all. Then a year or two went by with serotonin on the rise Till I was feeling comfortable and calm Now every single time we touch I get that oxytocin rush Our bond has never been so strong I know oxytocin is the potion of devotion Dial back that dopamine Here comes serotonin Still going, growing Stronger all the time I love you And I'm never gonna change my mind Lady, we've been together for a while now And things are starting to mellow out But that's okay Because we can get those sparks of dopamine back By experiencing new things together Oxytocin is the potion of devotion A little bit of dopamine A lot of serotonin Still going, growing Stronger all the time. I love you. Love. And I'm never gonna change my mind. Never gonna change my mind. Never gonna change my mind. Happy Valentine's Day from Skunk Bear, NPR's science show. Subscribe to our channel and send this video to someone you love. Special thanks to Austin Zumbro for sparking the idea for this song.